This Week at Hope Point. And whereas these prosperity preachers enrich themselves by perverting this message, we come to proclaim a Savior who emptied himself to present this message. I mean, as they're getting richer and richer and richer in these luxury hotels, proclaiming a message that is false, we present a Jesus who lowered himself as much as possible, emptied himself upon the cross to satisfy the greatest need of humanity. Sins forgiven, relationship with God restored, eternal life in heaven for anyone who would believe and turn from their sins. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Caleb speaks to us from God's Holy Word. Well, we are back in Jude again. And if you've been tracking with us the last few times we've, we've met, Jude has been calling out this silent killer, this secret threat to the church. We pointed out in our very first message that that they've crept in unnoticed, they've snuck into the church, and it's this insider threat that is so much more dangerous and so much more of a threat to the health and well-being of the church than anything on the outside, mainly because it's so sneaky and it's crept in. And so we, we looked at that the first week and the calling that Jude gives the church to stand and fight, to contend for the faith, to fight for the truth. And then last time we we looked at three examples in Jude of Old Testament examples of people not being faithful to the truth and how God judged them, what what he did there. And if you've caught on by now, Jude has this tendency, it's this thing he likes to do where he works in these little groups of threes. He likes these little triplets. So in that first message, if you remember, he addressed the, the, the believers as called, beloved, and kept. And then when he urged them to stand and fight for the truth, he reminded them to do it with mercy, peace, and love. And then, like I just said in the previous message, he gave three examples, uh, this little triplet of examples of people who were wayward or who were rebellious against God in reminding us of the wandering Israelites after they left Egypt, and then the sexually immoral of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the rebellious angels, these three examples of those who had rebelled. So he likes to work in these little triplets, And he's going to do that again today. And in the few verses we're looking at, verses 8 through 12, he's going to give us three triplets that we got to work through. So we're going to try and work through all of these three sets of three as he tries to give us this final picture of the the apostate, the one who's fallen away, the false teacher, the wolf in sheep's, sheep's clothing. And I think it's significant that he goes this right. He kind of goes above and beyond to really present this picture for us, and it says something about the way that he seeks to shepherd his people, as he's parenting and shepherding and trying to care for those that are looking to him to lead them, as he's guarding the flock that's been entrusted to him. He could go on like a whistleblowing, finger-pointing, calling out each individual false teacher and each individual false message, but he'd never be done. And if that's the case back then, now in, the, in 2023 for a pastor to be able to address and expose and call into question every individual message and messenger that might taint your beliefs and views of God, well, we would never be done because we're so overexposed by, by teachings and teachers who claim the name of Christ. And so Jude takes a smarter approach. Instead of calling out each individual one, he seeks to teach his people discernment, to teach them to be able to spot 
the false message when they hear it, to spot the false messenger when they hear it, even if that messenger might be the mirror, if there are false messages creeping into our own thinking, our own beliefs, our own flesh that might lead us astray. Rather than trying to call out each individual one, Jude says, let me teach you how to spot them. Let me teach you spiritual discernment. It's a crucial gift of the believer to be able to discern things. Spurgeon would say that discernment is not about being able to know the difference in right and wrong, but to know the difference between right and almost right. And that's what we're up against. It's almost right, which is why it's so sneaky, why it's so prevalent, why Jude goes to such great lengths to give us triplet after triplet after triplet after triplet. And we're going to try and get three of those today. So we'll pick up in verse 8, and let's see if we can discern by these different triplets he uses who this false teacher is, what this false message is, and how we can respond. We'll see first three traits of the apostate. This is for your note takers. Then we're going to see three examples of the apostates, and then we'll see three, for the, every, every literary person in here who likes the poetic way of things, three metaphors from nature of the apostate to really help finish that picture for us. Hopefully we can get through all three of these. So first off, in verse eight, we're gonna see these three traits of the, the, the false ones, these apostates. He says, yet in like manner, these people, the false teachers, the apostates, those who have fallen away, relying on their dreams, they do these three things. They defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. These three traits, these three things that they do or that, that sort of describe their behavior really come out of the way they operate, the way they live. Notice it says they are relying on their dreams. They're dreamers. And what he might mean there is this idea of being spiritually asleep, that they're sleepwalking through life. They're lacking discernment. This is certainly something we see in Scripture. In Isaiah, it says for the Lord, chapter 29, the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes and covered your heads. And over and over throughout Scripture, we hear of this concept of people who are hearing, but they're not, they're not able to listen. They're seeing, but they can't really see. They have eyes, but they can't really see. This idea of being asleep, spiritually speaking, they, they can't discern for themselves the truth because they haven't been given the, the aid of the Spirit to do so. Maybe he's referring to something like this. But if you look two verses later in Jude 10, Jude 10 uh, he kind of clarifies a little bit of what this, this dreaming is, relying on their dreams. He says, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. Remember, they can't understand it because they've been put to deep sleep. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. He compares them to animals, unreasoning animals, relying on their dreams and their instincts. In other words, left to their own devices without the authority, the aid, the revelation, the rational thinking that comes only from God. They're left on their own. And what's the result? They, they behave like animals, unreasoning animals. Isn't this sort of what separates us from the animal kingdom? An animal really has no way other than experience to like broaden their horizons intellectually. There's no library for them to go to to garner new ideas. There's no temple or church for them to go and, and create belief. There's no place for them to really develop 
No conscience to probe their heart and call them to question things. They're just left to their own devices, merely seeking to survive. And Jude says, this is what they are like. The false teacher is life. Like because they've been cut off from the wisdom that comes only from God, they're left to their own devices, relying instead on their dreams, their feelings, their instincts, what seems right to them. And isn't that a a terrible place to be? As Paul would put it in 1 Corinthians, the natural person, in other words, the one not aided by the Spirit, not filled with the Spirit, not awakened by God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are all folly to him, and he is not able to understand them. He can't understand them. He's blind. He's asleep. They are spiritually discerned, and this false one on the outside looking in does not have spiritual discernment. So all this is folly. To him. Or elsewhere, as Proverbs would say, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. He just does what seems right to him. She just does what seems right to her. Left to our own devices. This is the place these false teachers, these apostates, find themselves left on their own. And as a result, how do they behave? Well, they do these three things and they sort of do them all together. It's not like three categories. It's really like just... When you, when you are this way, your behavior comes out in this, this type of conduct by defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheming the glorious ones. They, they sort of all bleed into each other there. Because when you reject authority, history and our own experience and the countless accounts of the Bible tell us that when we reject authority, human beings have pretty self-destructive tendencies, We don't take care of ourselves very well when we're left alone. Our desires actually wage war against us. They undo us. And so the natural outcome of rejecting authority is to defile the flesh. It's what happens to us when we reject God's authority, the authority that that God has actually placed in our lives to protect us. And this is what we see with the false teachers as well. The the primary reason they they reject authority, if you're careful and listening to their their speaking, their messages, they they claim, and this is so consistent, these speakers that will fill arenas, they, they claim to have just this special access to God. I've got a divine word to give you today. God gave me this morning on my way over here. They say stuff like that. Let me tell you this little insider secret I got that only God gave me. Rather than speaking from this, it's listen to what God told me. They reject the true authority, relying instead on their dreams and their instincts and their feelings and what seems right to them. And they lead those who follow them to just, well, he's anointed. He must know the truth. He's special. God's, he's tapped into something with God here. We got to just listen to what he says and all the while the flesh is being defiled. There's a, one of the most prominent names you can think of when it comes to these types of teachers, especially in the name it, claim it, the prosperity preaching arena. Benny Hinn, his, uh, I'm sure you've heard of him before, heard of his teachings, his healing events and all these things that have really, really profited him in, in some mighty ways. His nephew, Costi, left all that, abandoned his, his uncle's ministry and joined the real church and began really preaching the truth. But he looks back on his time with his uncle and the way that they were sort of raised to think about themselves. And it's interesting what he says. He said, God and his word did not govern our behavior. 
We governed our behavior. God did not put boundaries on us. There was no call to holiness. It was we do what we want because we are essentially a God unto ourselves. And this is the lie of these false teachers that because they have special access, they get special privileges. They don't have to submit to the authority of God's word and the authority of God himself. And what comes with this is they take light, sin. They minimize sin. And that leads to a defiling of the flesh. The authority that was placed in front of them by design, by God's design, actually was meant to protect them. But they, they avoid that. Look at what Paul says about this in Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority whether it be government or religious authority or biblical authority or parental authority or police authority or anything, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God to prevent us from everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's why those authorities were put in place. It's a means of God's common grace on humanity that we would be protected from undoing ourselves. And when we reject human authority, we're ultimately rejecting God's authority because it was his sovereignty, whether we like the person or not, whether we think they're good or not, his sovereign will to place them in authority. And these teachers just run right around that and create their own path. And the outcome is they defile the flesh. They blaspheme the holy ones. This is one of the reasons why we so reject their message, this prosperity message, this health and wealth, come to Jesus and get rich, find success, have all your issues healed instantly. We reject that. And one of the reasons is because of how it belittles this. They're always speaking an encouraging word of victory from within, which is why they have no trouble filling arenas, which is why their crowds are so large. In their words, God wants to do something mighty in you. He's just waiting on you to unlock your potential. Just to be the real you. What's deep down inside there. If we can unlock that, who's your Goliath? We're going to take him out. That's their message. And in doing so, they minimize sin. They make struggles all about these external things. And they make you the victim. Always. Always. In this sense, many prosperity pastors belittle the sinfulness of their listeners, which naturally results in them resisting authority, which naturally results in defiling the flesh, undoing ourselves. Those of us who have an accurate understanding of just how sinful we are, like how drawn to sin we are, we have a healthy reliance upon these bumpers that God has instituted, these authorities that keep us in check, And so we do submit to them. The honest pastor knows that for human beings left completely to their own devices, left alone, reaching your potential is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. I am no hallmark when I'm left on my own. I don't want to reach my potential apart from Christ. And that's the danger of this message. That's the outcome of those who rely on their dreams, their instincts, their feelings. They reject authority, they defile the flesh, and then, as he says, they blaspheme the holy ones. Now, 
to get what he means with blaspheming the holy ones or the glorious ones, we got to look at the next verse because we're kind of unsure what he means there when he uses that word doxa, glory. Is he talking about the, the authorities he just mentioned or is he talking about angelic beings? So we'll go to verse nine here in Jude and he's going to bring up the archangel Michael and as a way of contrasting. Here's what the false teachers are doing, the apostate ones are doing. And in contrast to that, very, very stark contrast, look at how Michael acted. And let's hold these two up. The contrast. So Michael is contending with the devil. Love that they threw that little phrase in there as we, the representatives of the church, are contending with and fighting and going to battle with the devil's minions to preserve the church. Here's Michael fighting, contending with the devil himself in combat with the very devil, Satan himself. And they're arguing, disputing about the body of Moses. Now, this, this account is the only place in Scripture where it's referenced. It's really this actual event that he's referring to is not in Scripture. It's put in the assumptions of Moses and outside of the Bible source. But we're going to go with it because Jude goes with it. And it does seem to be hist- uh, a historical part of the, the faith to hold this as something that actually happened. What Michael does here is so significant in the way that he deals with the devil. They're arguing about Moses's body. Basically, when Moses died, we see in the end of Deuteronomy, he dies and no one knows where he was buried. And that was by design because we know how sinful the Israelites were. And if they could go and look up and find his body, who knows what they would do with it? Might have a golden calf experience all over again. So intentionally, his body was hidden. We didn't know where it was buried. And now here's Satan going, trying to find it. Who knows what he wants to do with it? We don't know his, 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 his plans, but we know that Michael was assigned with blocking that plan from happening. Standing his ground, manning his post, and, and disputing with Satan about not gaining Moses' body. But even in that, in the fight with Satan there, notice what he goes on to say. He did not presume And that word presume is so significant here. He didn't go beyond the task that was given him. Michael stayed in his lane. He didn't go as far as to pronounce a blasphemous judgment on Satan himself and said, I'll leave that to the Lord. Let the Lord rebuke you. I won't. And all of us are scratching our heads over that. Why resist the chance? Here's your chance, Michael. Put the devil in his place. Tell him where he can go. Isn't this his opportunity? Wipe him out here. Condemn him. We we know he's evil. We know his ways are, are always evil. Why not take him out here? Michael did not presume to go beyond what God had commanded him to do. Because Michael knew something very significant. He had this real accurate understanding of this one principle. I am not God. And I don't know the mind of God. And I will not presume to know the mind of God. God has assigned me to stand here and prevent Satan from finding Moses' body. Period. I won't go further. It's not my place to condemn him with judgment here. I'll leave that to the Lord to do. Michael recognizes that he doesn't know what God is up to. Whose devil is this? God's. For God to be sovereign over all, it means he's sovereign over even the devil. 
Michael says, I'm not going to stand in the way of what God might be doing here. It's not my place to jump in on behalf of God and speak where I've not been told to speak. Perhaps God is doing something to work something good sovereignly out of this evil here that the devil seeks to do. Why would I, why would I speak when I haven't been told to speak? And this is the contrast that, that Jude uses when he talks about these false teachers because that's what they do so often. They presume out of their special access that they have to God's will to speak on behalf of God when God has not spoken. They blaspheme the glorious ones. Slander the angelic beings. And he says, hey, Michael didn't even slander the devil. Stay in your lane. That's what he's saying here. This is a huge, huge contrast for us to see. These are the three things. That's our first triplet. They're the three ways we can spot the apostate one, because they rely on their dreams, they do those three things. They, they reject authority, they defile the flesh, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now let's move on to the second triplet. He's going to give us these three examples. Here are three apostates, three, of the, three people we can say, these are ones that have fallen away. These are the ones we don't want to be like. He begins in verse 11, woe to them. And we know, we, we recognize that word, woe. He took from the very words of Jesus, Matthew 23, when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Is this not the description we just finished laying out for the apostate one? Above the surface, on the stage, appearing to be righteous, having special access to God, but below the surface, dead people's bones, unclean, full of lawlessness and hypocrisy. And Jesus says, woe to you. And Jude says, woe to them. That word woe is this, you know, we often see it as like a curse, but really it's, it's more of an observation. As if he's saying, alas, look at how horrible a place you have found yourself. Look at what you've gotten yourself into. This is what Jude says of them. They, these false, these false teachers, these apostates, they walked in the way of Cain. There's our first one, our first example. Cain, we recognize that name quickly. This is Adam and Eve's son, the brother of Abel. Genesis tells us this is our first murderer. But this way of Cain probably is a little bit deeper than that just because we've already pointed out before in previous messages this false teacher is subtle, sneaky. Murder is not very subtle. Pretty overt, pretty, pretty serious crime there, heinous crime. So there's something else here in the, the way of Cain that we're getting at. What were the circumstances that led Cain to kill his brother Abel? If you look at Genesis 4, both brothers, Cain and Abel, brought an offering from their, their specialty, from their field. Cain is one who worked the grounds, brings fruit of the ground. And then Abel, who's a shepherd, brings the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. They both bring from what they have earned before God. And we're not certain, given this is four chapters into the Bible, whether or not the two brothers had clear instructions from God yet about what to offer and what not to offer. At least we know their parents had already experienced a lamb being slain on their behalf to cover their nakedness in the garden. Maybe that's why Abel knows to do this. We're not certain there, and commentators seem to be divided on that. But what we do know, what's clear, is there's something about the attitude of their hearts 
that seems to be different between the two brothers. So we'll look there. We, we know just from the rest of Scripture that God looks less at the offering and more at the heart of the offerer. And that seems to be what's going on here. Notice Cain's offering is just described as fruit of the ground. Whereas for Abel, he makes the distinction that he didn't just bring one of his flock. He brings the firstborn of his flock, the, the, the best of his flock. We know there is a precedence, a hierarchy in Scripture for the firstborn. And not only that was it the firstborn, it was also of the fat portions, which would have been the best part of the animal. Amen? The best part here, they, the, in the sacred order, the blood and the fat would have been the sacred part. They signified fertility and strength and prosperity. And so for Abel, he's offering his firstborn, and the best part of his best one to God. Whereas it seems that Cain is just, at least something in him is leading him from his heart to give less than the best that he has to offer to God. Hebrews would tell us that Abel gave his offering in faith where it seems like there's something lacking in Cain's offering. And it's that thing that was lacking, a desire to give less than his best that led him to not be approved by God and then led him to respond in anger because he had not subjected to the authority, responded in anger, defiled his flesh, killed his brother. This reminds me of a New Testament story, very similar, Ananias and Sapphira. If you remember from the early church in Acts 4, the early church was known for meeting one another's needs. And Ananias and Sapphira observe in chapter 4 that look at all these people that are doing that. They're selling their field, they're selling their home, and they're meeting the needs of those in their church. And they hear this one guy in particular who does that. They say, hey, we want, we want to have the kind of attention that Joseph got for, for making this special gift to the church. So in chapter 5 begins that Ananias and Sapphira, they went and sold their field, a piece of their property. They brought the proceeds, some of the proceeds, gave it to the church, and then kept the rest for themselves. And when Peter discovered this, when it's brought to Peter's attention, in an instant, both Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead right there in his presence. Their offering to God was not rejected because of the amount. It wasn't they didn't give enough, that they didn't make enough profit on their field and God needed more. They were struck dead because of the attitude of their heart. It was using worship and charity as a means for personal gain. The financial gain of pocketing some money from this sale, but also the social and status gain of, look at our piety. Look at how faithful we are to the church. We, yes, we just sold our, our land for you guys to meet your needs. You're welcome. You can see that there. They're in their motives. Religious practice gave them a way to better themselves, build their own kingdom, elevate their own status. And they abused that for personal gain and they were killed for it. This is what we start to see even in the second example. We have Cain here and Ananias and Sapphira. And it says they abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. Greed here is at the heart. Some, gaining something for myself at the cost of truth. And that's what leads even Balaam, our second example, into error. He's a prophet for profit, which is a contradiction. A true prophet speaks the word of God. Whenever the word of God is spoken, they receive that word, they speak it to God's people. There is no such thing as being paid to prophesy. 
It's backwards. And yet that's exactly what Balaam does. The Moabite king Balak hires Balaam to go and speak a word that is not true to the people of Israel and desiring gain, he buys in. And just like what we've already pointed out about Ananias and Sapphira and even Cain, when greed creeps in to our religious practices, we destroy ourselves. I love what Charles Spurgeon says in this regard. He says, never let riches be pursued under the pretense of religion. Sell your wares and find a market for your merchandise, but do not sell Christ, nor barter a heavenly birthright for a worthless bribe. We do not let greed and our own desire to to prosper from the church or the truth or this book taint the message or the way that we speak it. And that's what we see happening so often with these false teachers, these false pastors who garner such attention and fame. There's greed and pride at the root of what they're doing, building something for themselves and not caring for the flock they've been entrusted. But back to, back to uh, our example from Jude 11, we got Korah as our third one in this second triplet here, perished in Korah's rebellion. Korah was another Old Testament figure here in Numbers, uh, a prominent man who, who got a few other prominent men to join him and basically confront Moses and Aaron and essentially say, you've gone too far. And what they meant by that is, you have too much. You've, you just, you're, you're abusing your authority. You've benefited too much from this. And they're their hope was to sort of overtake things, to create a rebellion and have their, build their own little kingdom, to usurp God's anointed one. And in doing so, they're taking, remember what we looked at in Romans 13, they're taking the very authority that God put in place. Moses is sort of a governing authority over the people of Israel and Aaron as a religious authority figure over the people. And they're saying, we reject your authority which as scripture says, means they are rejecting ultimately God's authority. And God responds in Numbers 16. He says, as soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. God did not take lightly to this rebellion. Their desire for personal gain led them to reject the authority God had put in place and they were condemned for it. Notice all three of these examples. Men who went against God's authority, had selfish motives, prideful intent, greed in their heart, and they abandoned the truth and were judged by it. And notice when they're described here, these, the they he's talking about is not Cain, not Balaam, not Korah. The they he's talking about, the subject here, are these false teachers, the apostates that he's referring to in present day for Jude's audience. But notice, Walked, past tense. Abandoned, past tense. Perished, past tense. Their judgment for their deeds, for their waywardness, for their leading astray the church is just as certain. We're going to go ahead and write it in past tense as the judgment that happened to Cain and Balaam and Korah. It's done. Their judgment is sealed. These, these false ones who are creeping into the church. So that's our second triplet there. We made it through two. Let's real quickly look at these last three here. Y'all are rolling with me just just greatly. Here we go, verse 12. We've got hidden reefs. We've got waterless clouds. And we've got fruitless trees. Notice three things in nature. Reefs, trees, clouds. Things we're, we're familiar with in nature. And notice a descriptive word with them that doesn't seem to match 
what we're used to, these coral reefs. We don't want them hidden. You go snorkeling and scuba diving, pay hundreds of dollars to see the beauty of these reefs and all the fish that are, that are within them clouds are meant to bring water and, and rain to, to just sustenance for the land. Trees, especially in late autumn, are meant to be full of fruit, to reap a harvest. And yet all of these are, have been sort of reversed I love this first one, the hidden reefs. I've got to go into my story a little bit to help you understand the hidden reefs. Many of you know I grew up in South Asia for for many years, and if you asked me where was the coolest place that you lived in the world, I would tell you hands down the Gulf Fort in Sri Lanka. Yes, I literally lived in a fortified city for almost two years. You'll see this, this city, this big wall in the front, and it's on this sort of peninsula, so it's surrounded by water. It was built by the Dutch back in the 15th and 16th century. It was taken over by the Portuguese. And this this stronghold of their empires when they were controlling Sri Lanka way back then. You'll notice the front wall is really, really strong, really, really wide and tall. And then on the back, the side of the water, the walls are much smaller, much shorter, not as, not as thick. In fact, when the Dutch first built it, before the Portuguese took it over, um, they, they didn't even have the, the walls. Like the first, when they first built it, they didn't have the wall because the water was enough. And here's why the water was enough. You'll notice they intentionally put these big boulders, these rocks in different places along the coastline. And so that's, that's so that when the enemy was approaching in their ships and they're coming up to this, this city, notice, hey, look, we're not going in the front way. Let's go in the back. There's no wall there. It's easy to get in there. We just got to watch out for the rocks. The rocks were a decoy. They were put there intentionally because just beneath the calm surface of this Indian Ocean, is about four to five feet deep of water and an entire layer of jagged, sharp reef, hidden reef, just waiting to pierce the hull of the ship and leave them just almost there, almost attacking, but now stuck. Matter of fact, for about a year when I lived there, I watched this humongous barge that was like a trash barge be stuck right there. And I mean, they couldn't remove it because it was so heavy, so big, it couldn't move. It was just stuck there in the reef. And, and Jude says, this is the false teacher above the surface, on the stage, warm, welcoming, encouraging, passionate, got it all together. But just beneath the surface are hidden reefs ready to pierce the hull of the ship of the church and leave them shipwrecked. We've got to watch out. This is the false teacher. Not only the hidden reef, but also the waterless cloud swept along by winds. The the audience hearing him say waterless clouds would, would catch that really quickly because for them, being in a Palestinian climate that's very dry and arid, experiencing drought very often, when they would see these clouds coming in from a distance, There's celebration. Our needs are finally going to be met. Water is on its way. We need this. And if the clouds arrive and then no rain falls, you imagine their disappointment. And this is exactly, again, what the false teacher does. Makes all these big, bold promises because they presume to know the will of God. And they have no power to actually deliver. Just waterless clouds 
Proverbs would say, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. And that's exactly what the prosperity preachers do. They, they preach this gift and they never actually hand it to you. They never meet your need. They never have an answer for the real problems that you're faced with. One commentator would say, appearing to bring the refreshing water of the word, they blow past once they have taken what they want, preying on others as they move on. These false teachers promise liberty, but enslave. They promise prosperity, but impoverish. They promise refreshment and leave their followers parched. And they promise life, but bring death. Go back to Benny Hinn, who I mentioned earlier. Costi, uh, his nephew, was talking about one of their trips, one of these little traveling trips they went around the world to preach and to and claim healing and really to get people to give. And they stopped over. It was a layover. Like they literally just got held up at the airport and had to spend a weekend layover. And instead of sleeping on the floor of the airport like the rest of us, they go to this man-made island, stay in this tall resort, man-made island. They, they stay in the luxury suite, decked out completely in gold. And he said in that weekend, they spent between forty dollars and $50,000 on a layover, on their way to India. To the impoverished people of India living on a dollar a day. And they're going to go there and say, give, 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 and watch what God will do. Plant the seed of faith and watch it grow. Give us that dollar, we'll, you'll see a hundred come back so that we can spend another forty, fifty thousand $50,000 on the next layover on our way back. This is the waterless cloud of the false teacher. The fruitless tree, as he said, of the false teacher in late autumn. This is when the tree needs to be the fullest. When you go to Skytop this season, the trees are just so full of apples for the picking. It's late autumn. We're ready to reap the harvest, but they're fruitless. They're empty. They promise you something that they cannot deliver. And Jude says they're twice dead because of it. What does he mean twice dead? Well, fruitless. They don't have any fruit because they're dead. And so now they're rootless. They're uprooted, confirming their death, their spiritual death. They have no way to fulfill the promises they claim. No way to produce fruit. And we know what Jesus says he does to the trees that bear no fruit. These are phonies. The waterless clouds, the fruitless trees, the hidden reefs, they're phonies. And this is at the heart of why true believers of this book hate the prosperity message, hate the prosperity gospel because of what it does to taint the truth and mislead people. They place an emphasis on the symptoms of the disease rather than our actual condition. So they cover cancer with flashy band-aids. When your enemy is poverty or sickness or loneliness or anxiety or a difficult boss at work or struggling to pay the bills or you've got some type of a junky car that you have to deal with, all these things that the prosperity preachers love to address and love to fix, you're settling for something so far removed from the true Savior. It's no difference from the the, waving, the palm branch waving Jews who said, Hosanna, Hosanna, one day, and then crucify him the very next day because they missed the truth of who the Messiah really was. Looking for a small savior 
to fix your small problems. And I don't say that to belittle those problems. They're real. I'm sure in the the list I just gave, everyone in this room can check one of them off as a real problem you're facing today. I don't say small problems to make light of the problems. I say small problems to make large how big your true problem is. It's a problem those preachers always seem to avoid and overlook. The true problem is so much greater than any of that. So beware of the pastors that settle for less. Beware of the ones who seem to just stay up here on the surface and never get to the heart of things. Beware of those who belittle sin. Beware of those who only promise material, surface level solutions and never get to the heart. Beware of those who rob God of the glory he deserves as being the only true source of saving. I mean, this is why we cling to the truth, why we fight to protect it. Because we recognize that people are broken. People are in need. And whereas these prosperity preachers enrich themselves by perverting this message, we come to proclaim a Savior who emptied himself to present this message. I mean, as they're getting richer and richer and richer in these luxury hotels, proclaiming a message that is false, we present a Jesus who lowered himself as much as possible, emptied himself upon the cross to satisfy the greatest need of humanity. Sins forgiven. Relationship with God restored. Eternal life in heaven for anyone who would believe and turn from their sins. This is the message that we preach. This is the healing that they need. This is the tree that has fruit on it, the cloud that brings rain, the reef that's beautiful and deserves to be looked at and admired. This is the Jesus and the truth that the church must fight to protect so that people may be saved. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.